Well, good morning, friends. We would love to have you come and attend that event. And yes, Nikki, who was up there on the screen, is here among us. Right? So you have a chance to meet her after. It feels like meeting a celebrity. So you can be a part of that. And it's going to be great. We'd invite you to sign up for that. Yesterday was such a wonderful reminder to me that we gather here on Sundays in order to worship Jesus together and to worship our Lord. And that we go from here and that the Lord works in and through us as his church every day throughout the week. Yesterday was a, a powerful and wonderful reminder to me of that as I started the day at All Church Prayer with many of you. And we spent time praying for fall retreat and the five days that students and leaders are going to spend at camp together. And it was great to pray for God to be moving and working during that time. And we prayed for what's going on in Israel and for there to be peace and for God to use even the worst and most wicked actions in order to draw people to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we prayed for our missionaries and the work that they're doing and for our worship services and for God to be at work in us here and through our ministries. Then in the afternoon, I had an opportunity to stand right here as a young couple from our church made a covenant with God to live forever with each other in marriage. It was a beautiful time of celebrating the covenant that they were entering into with God in order to live out that Christ-church relationship in their married life. And then, as I was at the reception for that wedding, I was a part of a group text in which one of you told us that your parent who has been resisting the gospel of Jesus Christ for decades, yesterday chose to follow after Jesus and to walk with him. Been praying for this parent for years. The family's been praying for decades. Uh, what, what glorious news uh, it was. I told my wife, she was on that group text, I said, you're not allowed to read this until we're in the car or you'll fall apart and you won't be able to talk to anyone. And that was true, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Kept her away from the phone. She didn't get any of that good news until we were in a place where she could fall apart properly with joy. It's great. Oh, what a, what, a, what a just a great reminder that God's at work in and through his church. We gather here today, but he does most of his work when we're out throughout the rest of the days of the week. I, I know you heard me say that we prayed for our missionaries yesterday. And one of those missionaries that we specifically prayed for uh, were the Welches. And I told them to sit wherever they wanted and I would find them. And now I'm having the hardest time finding them. Where are you? Oh, there we are. Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, Kenny and you, would you guys stand up? Kenny and Yuna are here today. <laughs> Kenny and Yuna are our missionaries uh, planting churches in Belize. And they've been our missionaries for many years. And you guys have your daughters with you today, right? Anaya and Nissa. And Kenny, my understanding is it was your birthday just two days ago. Is that right? Yes. And it's... Anaya's birthday later this week. So it is birthday week for you guys. Hope you guys are having great celebration. 
And we want to we be praying for them. We want to be praying for God to continue to be strengthening them. It is a challenge as they plant more than one church. And so there is a lot going on. We want to be praying for God to be working in and through them. And just as a sign of your willingness to pray for them with me, would you all stand with me? And those who are around Kenny, would you, would you lay your hands on them with me? Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Kenny and Yuna. We're thankful for the way that they have responded to your call in their life. We want to pray that you'd be continuing to work in and through them and the girls to draw them closer and closer into relationship with you. Lord, we ask that you'd continue to work through them as this church planting venture takes up so much of their lives. We ask that you might strengthen them your Holy Spirit would be working through them in order to continue to make more disciples. Lord, we ask that this time, as we joke about birthday celebrations, we, we do genuinely pray that this would be a time of rest, that this would be a time of strengthening as they are here, so that as they go back, they can go back refreshed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before you're seated, oh, I got you. I'd love for you to just take a minute and greet the people around you. And if you're over there, greet Kenny and Yuna. For the, uh, for the sake of the introverts, I'm going to cut it off there and ask you to go back to your seats at this time. We have an opportunity today to meet with the living God in His Word. Does it get better than that? An opportunity to meet with the living God in His Word. And we're doing that in the midst of this sermon series called Kingdom Logic. We're walking through Mark chapters 9 and 10 where there is lesson after lesson after lesson about what the kingdom of God is like. And we saw in the first week of this series the most important lesson there is about the kingdom of God. What's the most important lesson there is about the kingdom of God? We saw it. Oh, I heard it. What? Yes, that's right. Absolutely. We saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration. The most important lesson is Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And because Jesus is the king of the kingdom... It is totally and completely different than the way of the world. That's represented by the artwork up here on the screen where you have one city completely and totally upside down from another because the way of Jesus is completely and totally different than the way of the world. The kingdom of the world is completely and totally upside down from the kingdom of God. And each week we have been walking through a different way in which the kingdom of God is totally and completely different than the way of the world. And today, we're going to see that the kingdom of God is completely different from the way of the world when it comes to what greatness is all about. How do you live a great life? How do we measure what greatness is like? The measure of greatness is completely different in the world than it is in the kingdom of God, according to King Jesus. And we're going to see that in our passage today, a passage that starts with a very worldly set of questions by two of Jesus' closest disciples. 
Look with me at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Where we read, if I can get us there, maybe I can't. All right. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Yeah, what? Now, some of you know, James and John are known as the sons of... That's right. And this is a very bold request, even from a couple of boys from the Thunder family, isn't it? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you before we tell you what it is. Parents. Right? If your kid approaches you and says, I want you to buy for me whatever I ask, but I'm not going to tell you what it is, how many of you are going to fold for that? And Jesus isn't either, is he? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one to your right hand and one to your left in your glory. What is it that James and John want? They want the seats to the right and the left of the throne when Jesus is in his glory. Why are they asking for that now? Because Jesus has just taught them that they're on their way to, the Jeru on their way to Jerusalem once again, he's taught them they're on their way to Jerusalem so that he can die and rise again. As a matter of fact, if you look at the verses right before where we started, they say that they're on their, Jesus says he's on his way to be condemned to death so that he can be mocked, spit upon, flogged, killed, and after three days, he will rise. Now, it is possible that James and John recognize that Jesus is going to rise from the dead and they want the spots to the right and the left when he is the risen Lord. But I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think that James and John are missing what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus told them, I'm going to the cross, and the disciples didn't get it. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, and we're told the disciples didn't get it. And in Mark chapter 10, he says, we're going to Jerusalem so I can be mocked and flogged, and I'm going to be crucified and raised again on the third day. And I don't think the disciples get any of that. James and John's picture of Messiah is of someone from the ruling Davidic line who will sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem and rule over Israel and return Israel to prominence and power among the world. And they say, Jesus, when you're ruling on that messianic throne, can we have the spots to your right and to your left? Why do they want the spots to the right and left? It's because they just want to be close to Jesus, right? No, what are, what are the spots to the right and the left of the throne? They are the positions of prominence and power. These are where the people who are closest to the king, the advisors of the king, stand. And so James and John have said, can we have the very best seats, the seats of prominence, the seats of power? We want those seats, Jesus. Do you notice who is missing from this request? Jesus among his disciples has an inner three. And who is that inner three? It is Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. It's that inner three that get brought up into the upper room in Jairus' house when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's that inner three that are brought up onto the Mount of Transfiguration in order to see Jesus transform before them. 
But here, it is only James and John. Peter has been cut out. I challenge you to find another place in the Gospels where James and John are mentioned without Peter. Right? This is the only place that you'll find that. Why? Because there's only places to the right and the left. There's only two seats of prominence and power. There's not a seat above or some sort of seat. No, there are only seats to the right and the left. And so in a survivor-like alliance, these brothers have cut Peter out and they have come in order to seek these very two best seats. You can imagine this has got to be super popular with Peter. What is Jesus response going to be, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one to your left in your glory, Jesus. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus uses two different Hebrew idioms here essentially to say, can you walk in my shoes? The cup often represents suffering in the Old Testament. So there is probably a sense here of, can you follow my path of suffering? I've just told you, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be crucified. Can you follow me into that cup of suffering? Can you be immersed into that suffering with me? And what is the disciples' response? Oh yeah, absolutely, we are able James and John remind me here of a kid who wants a prize so badly that they are willing to agree to anything in order to get it. Uh, Of the eight-year-old who wants to make that first trip ever to Valley Fair Amusement Park. Dad, can we go to Valley Fair? Dad, can we go to Valley Fair? And Dad says, yes, if you wash my car every week this summer, we'll go to Valley Fair. Okay, okay, I'm in. They don't even know what they just agreed to. They don't know if they can carry that out. And that's James and John here. Do they ask what the cup represents? Do they ask what baptism we're talking about? No, they only care about the prize. And they're like, yep, we'll do whatever. Just give us those seats of prominence and power before the other disciples get them. Yeah. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, this path of suffering that I'm going to walk, you will follow me into that. And what do we see in Acts? We see James and John along with the other disciples beaten, flogged, thrown into prison. What happens to James in Acts chapter 12? He's killed by the sword. What happens to John? He's isolated as a prisoner on an island because they're following Jesus. As they follow Jesus, they are going to follow him into this cup and this baptism of suffering. Jesus says, yes, you will follow me into these things. But then he says, "Uh, sorry, friends, but the seating arrangement in my glory, uh, that's not mine to give. Apparently, the Father has made all of the seating arrangements when I'm in my glory, and so, request denied. Now, somehow, someway, the other ten disciples find out about James and John's request. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
I love that phrase, began to be indignant. They were just getting warmed up in their indignation. And now this is pure speculation, but I have to believe that Peter probably played a significant and vocal role here in their indignation party. Why are the disciples frustrated and angry about James and John's request? I bet it's because they know the kingdom of God is about love and about selflessness. And James and John aren't getting it. And their hearts just break for James and John here. No, that's not it, is it? They're frustrated and angry with James and John because they want those positions of power and prominence. And James and John got there with a request first. Two times already in the book of Mark, we have seen the disciples arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And according to John's gospel, it's going to happen again, Jesus, last week. Again and again, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And here the disciples are frustrated because James and John got there with a request for these seats of prominence, these seats of, of, of position ahead of them. Ah! They're indignant. And in the midst of their frustration, Jesus is going to teach them an essential lesson about greatness in the world versus greatness in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, James and John, you guys are acting like the rulers of the Gentiles. Jesus uses that phrase, rulers of the Gentiles here, to represent those who rule according to the way of the world. And he says, James and John, disciples right now, you are acting like those who rule in worldly ways. What is that worldly way? What is it that the rulers of the world and James and John have in common here? What they have in common is a giant sense of me first in their attitudes and actions. They want to be elevated. They want to be seen as important. They want their way. What they are struggling with is a giant sense of me first. That is why the rulers of the Gentiles want to be rulers, so they can have their way, Jesus says. And James and John, isn't that what you're seeking? And disciples, isn't that why you're upset? Because you're all worried about you first, me first, me, me, me. And isn't this an issue that we all struggle with? From the very first sin, when God came to talk to Adam and Eve, and Adam immediately threw Eve under the bus. Why did he do that? Because Adam was concerned for me first. I'm going to go ahead and throw Eve under the bus because it's about me and I want to make sure I'm okay. And we all struggle with that. If we go home from church today and there's a great big pile of dishes in the sink, how are they going to get done? Well, there's some options. A, Erica could do them. B, Maddie's coming over, she could do them. C, I could do them. In my flesh and my natural self, I don't care which one of those options we go with as long as it's not C. Right? As long as it's not me. Because in my flesh, I want my way. I want to sit on the couch while somebody else takes care of the dishes. 
I want the things that I want. And Jesus says, that isn't the way to greatness in the kingdom. That's the way the world understands greatness, to get to the top so that you can have other people do what you want them to do, to have power in relationships, to have others serve you. That's greatness in the world. But he says, greatness in my kingdom is totally different than that. But it shall not be so among you. In the kingdom, it's not like this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says, in the kingdom, greatness is totally different than in the world. He changes how we keep score of greatness within the kingdom. Right? He changes how we keep score of greatness within the kingdom. When I was growing up, I played a lot of different sports, and in almost all of those sports, the person with the high score won. Right? Football, basketball, baseball, you wanted the high score if you were going to win. Now, a couple of months ago, I went out and played nine holes of golf with my wife. How do you win at golf? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Some who've played with me might think that, that that's my aim. I'm trying to get the high score. Right? Now, when I play with my wife, everyone wins because it's just such a blessing for the two of us to be out there together. Right, sweetie? <laughs> but generally in golf, it is the low score that wins. It is completely and totally different than all of those other games that I grew up playing. And you can imagine, if I went out with a foursome from this church, and we went out to go golfing together, and we played the opening par four, and the other three in the foursome scored four, five, and six, and I recorded a 29, and I said, what are you guys doing? Try harder. Five is pathetic. I got 29. I could have gone higher, you guys. Right? What are they going to say to me? They're going to say, Matt, you're playing the game the wrong way. And that is precisely what Jesus teaches his disciples here. The world is playing the game the wrong way. Exactly the opposite of what it is in the kingdom of God. The world is seeking me first. The world is living out in selfishness. The world wants to get over others so they have to do what we say. Jesus says, that's not the way it is in the kingdom. True greatness is about humble service of others. I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't say, I call my people to be losers. Right? Maybe in the world's way of measurement, but that isn't what Jesus says. What does he say? He says, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, Jesus is calling us to win here. But he's calling us to win according to the right way of playing the game, which is getting low and using every resource at our disposal to serve others and do what is best for others. He says, that, that's real greatness. Be great at that. Be first when it comes to serving others. If we need an example of what that kind of humble service looks like, look at Jesus' next interaction in the passage with a man named Bartimaeus. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and what? Followed him on the way. This man becomes a follower of Jesus through this experience. As a matter of fact, you may have noticed back at the beginning of this, not only is Bartimaeus' name given, but his father's name is given. It's possible, not for sure, but possible that we have his father's name because Bartimaeus was a significant part of the early church because he became a follower of Jesus at this point. Jesus is going where? Right? He's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. This is it. This is the final march to Jerusalem where he is going to go and take the guilt for sin, the rightful punishment for sin, the wrath of God, all upon himself on the cross. Do you think he had a lot on his plate at this point? Right? He is on his way to the cross to take our rightful punishment. He's got a lot on his plate, enough that a lot of people would say, hmm, you got a lot going on right now. Don't, don't worry about other people. But, but is the king going to go for that? Who is it that wants Jesus' attention? A man named Bartimaeus, who the people in the town consider so unimportant, they just want him to be quiet. You're not worth Jesus' attention here. They just want Jesus to keep moving past him and for Bartimaeus to stop talking. That's all they want. But Jesus won't do that. Instead, the king of the kingdom stops in order to care, in order to serve. Right? God in the flesh stops as he is on his way to the cross in order to care, in order to serve. Because the king himself is a servant. Right? The king himself is a servant. And he calls all of us to enter into the kingdom where we can be what? Servants, humble servants to all of those who are around us. That is his call in our life. What does the way of the world versus the way of the king look like in marriage? Right? The way of the world looks like me trying to get my way within my marriage. Me trying to make sure that my marriage is making me happy. The way of the world is focused on me in my marriage. What is the way of the king in marriage? The way of the king is about me giving up my life as Christ gave up his life for the church in order to do what is best for my wife. It's about me coming home from work tomorrow night and seeking what is best for her and to serve her. Isn't that the way of the king? What's the way of the world versus the way of the king when it comes to church? The way of the world when it comes to church says, what, what is the church going to do for me? How is the church going to conform to my preferences? The way of the king when it comes to church says, how can I pour myself out for the sake of those that I see around me today? How can I give of myself, whatever God has given to me, how can I use that 
in order to positively impact the lives of those around me for Jesus. Isn't that the way of the king when it comes to church? What's the way of the world versus the way of the king when it comes to our relationships? The way of the world is to gather people around me with which I'm comfortable and to try and always be in comfortable settings. The way of the king is to recognize that sometimes we need to break out of those comfortable sittings in order to give of ourselves to those who are hard to be around, those who are challenging, the Bartimaeuses of the world that the world sees as low. We need to give ourselves and our lives for their sake. That's God's call, that we would be people of the kingdom and that we would see greatness His way. As good an illustration as Jesus' interaction with Bartimaeus is of the king serving. There's an even better one in the passage in the verse that we skipped over. Right? Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God the Son came as a human being, the one who rightly deserves all worship, the one before whom every knee should bow, came in order to serve his sinful, messy, rebellious creatures like me. Now, I, I know if you're in church a lot, you hear that and go, yeah, 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 that's the gospel. Great. But I invite you to just take a moment and take that in. Take that in, that the God of the universe became a man in order to serve his rebellious, sinful, messy creatures like you and me. Mm. And how did he do that? How did he serve us? It says by becoming a ransom. A ransom. The Greek word here is lutron. It means to pay the price that is owed. To pay the price. He became our payment for the price that we owed because of our sin. That's how he serves us. By becoming our, our ransom or our redemption. We owed because of our sin. Jesus pays on our behalf as our sacrificial substitute. How good is that? Right? We owed. He paid. How, how good is that? And because He paid as our substitute, we are now those who were spiritually blind, but through the grace of God have received spiritual sight. We are those who are like Bartimaeus, crying out for mercy. And because of God's goodness, we have received that mercy and have received new life as we follow him as Bartimaeus did for the rest of our lives. So much goodness in all of this. So much of the grace of God poured out upon us. The king of the kingdom is a servant and calls us to greatness to serve one another. I, I just invite you to take a couple of minutes to process this with the Holy Spirit right now. You might want to bow your heads. I've got a couple of questions that I can ask us as we process what we have seen here today with God's Spirit. The first question is this. God is calling you, follower of Jesus, to kingdom greatness through humble service. What does that look like in you this week? What does kingdom greatness through humble service look like in this coming week.
pray for the Holy Spirit to give you clarity and the strength to carry out the call of being a servant this week. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus being our ransom at the communion table, what me first thoughts, words, or actions do you need to confess from this last week? Right? What me first thoughts, words, or actions do you need to confess to the Lord this week? As we confess our sins to the Lord, we recognize the promise that He is faithful and He is just and that our sins are wiped away. Jesus paid the ransom price for those me-first sins that we are confessing. He's gone to the cross so that we can receive grace that is greater than our sins. He's gone to the cross so that we can receive mercy that is greater than anything that we have done wrong. Father of Jesus, would you give him thanks now for his great grace and mercy that he has poured out through the work of Jesus Christ? Oh, his goodness, his mercy and his grace. Every week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it's a celebration that Jesus is our ransom. That he's the one who has paid the price, the price that we owed. And I want to invite you to continue to prepare your hearts. And when you're ready to take the bread and the cup that represent Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, I'd encourage you to make your way to the tables that are in the four corners of the room and take a piece of bread and take the cup and bring it back to your seat and we'll take those elements together as the body of Christ in just a few moments. And as we continue to prepare our hearts, let's sing Jesus' praises together. Let's sing about his great mercy that is greater than all of our me-first sins that we have committed. Let's worship him in that together.